Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. Good morning. It's good to be here again. My name is Ben, if we've never met before. Uh, we're going to be looking at this passage. So if you have your Bible, have them open, but it's going to be on the screen throughout. Let's pray, though, before we get into this passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather here this morning. We thank you, Lord, that when we gather together, that you are here with us. Um, Father, we pray that as we open up your word, that you would shape us and change us and comfort us. And we pray that we would be transformed because we've met with the living God. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever asked the question or maybe been asked the question, is Jesus different to everything else? Or, or is Jesus the same as every other belief system? Uh, recently, I found myself kind of in this position. Uh, towards the end of last year, Elizabeth, my wife and I, we moved homes. Uh, and it was a whole new experience for us because it meant that we moved into a new street with new neighbours. And then these neighbours actually wanted to talk to us. Uh, this wasn't our previous experience. We were in a townhouse before that. And either the neighbours would move every six months or the one neighbour that stayed would death stare us any time we waved at them. So this was a good experience for us. New, new neighbours, happy to chat. In fact, their reaction when I said that I worked at a church was that they were excited because, and I'm quoting here, a holy man had moved into the street. It was before they really got to know me. Uh, and so with our neighbours, we wanted to have these conversations with them, get to know them. We wanted to talk about God and this kind of thing. And so um, we've been trying over the last six months to get to know our neighbours. And a couple of weeks ago, as I was rushing the bin out uh, Friday morning before the bin guy got there, uh, started getting into a chat with one of our neighbours. Uh, and it got onto religion, it got onto God. And I asked her the question, um, what do you believe in? What do you believe in? What's your religion? You know, we, in our area, we've got the Sikh temple just around the corner from us. There's the mosque across the road. Uh, kind of around the corner, a little bit hidden, is the Taiwanese temple. There's a Mormon church as well. JWs are knocking. And so in all of this environment, I said, what do you believe? What's your religion? And she, her response kind of stunned me because she said, well, I believe the same thing as you. Now, I wasn't stunned because she's a Christian, I knew that we'd had this conversation before. She's, she's not a Christian. And so I said, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, well, I believe in the Gita. The Bhagavad Gita is the scriptures of Hinduism. And she said, it's the same thing as what you believe. You know, it's the same thing as what's in the Bible. My son went to RI, she said, you know, growing up, and he did that. He did the whole Christian thing. And he came home and said, it's exactly the same thing. What I believe is the same thing as what you believe. And so this is where I kind of found myself in this position having this conversation. Now, I didn't push her on that. I mean, it was our first real conversation about religion, and it was a good conversation. I mean, she did ask me the difference between JWs and Christianity, so we, we pushed into that. It was, it was a good conversation, but it kind of left me in this space asking this question, is she right? Is Christianity the same as everything else? Is it the same as every other belief system? Is what we've got in our Bible the same as what other people have in their scriptures? Is it the same thing as everyone else? And not only is it the same, but, but why does it matter? Why does it matter if it is different? What's at stake here if we kind of folded in all of the religions kind of in our area into one? 
Well, what we're going to do today is look into our Bibles to push into these questions. Because uh, as we look at John 14, what we see is that Jesus actually speaks into this space. I mean, if you're going to try and figure out if he is the same as everything else, you want to go to his words. And what we see in John chapter 14 is Jesus makes four massive, unique claims. Four claims that push into this space of whether he is the same as everything else or not. And we pick it up in our Bibles at John chapter 14, verse 1. He says this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. So, so is Jesus the same as everything else? Well, what we're going to see in this passage, four claims, and here's the first of four claims. Jesus is saying, I am going to heaven. That's what his claim is there. I'm going to the Father who is in heaven. This is the first kind of unique claim that Jesus makes. Now, I love why Jesus makes this claim. You know, he's not just looking for a hot take where he can get people's reactions. He's saying this claim as a comfort did you notice that? In verse 1, he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. So what he's about to say isn't just a claim for, you know, a reaction's sake. It's to bring his disciples a comfort. And he says, don't be troubled. Now, why are they troubled? Well, we've kind of looked at this in the last two weeks, if you've been with us. Uh, we've kind of gone on this journey of really slowing down and chewing on some of the events that happened just before Jesus' death. So two weeks ago, we looked at how Jesus washed his disciples' feet. You know, something that in the ancient world, a leader would never do. But he did this as a foreshadow to the cross to show that he was a servant leader. We, we sat on that on Sunday. Then we, we looked at that in growth group. And then we came back the next week and we looked at the Last Supper, how Jesus, in the face of betrayal and abandonment, loved his disciples. We, we sat on that last week. We, in our growth groups, discussed that. And then here we are. But see, while we've taken two weeks to slow down on this, the disciples have experienced this in a couple of hours. This is their dinner party, right? They, they go to dinner. In some ways, you can imagine expecting just the same as every other dinner party that they go to. And then this is what they get. You know, this is a drama-filled dinner party. You know, I haven't... Um, Ross was talking about that documentary last week, remember? Married at First Sight that he gets into. And um, <laughs> I have to say, I don't watch that, not because I'm not above it, right? I'm not above Married at First Sight, but... Uh, they, I have noticed on the ads in the last few years, though, that their hype is over the dinner parties. They like extend it over 10 hours and then give you the five minutes of drama in those dinner parties. But I think you could argue that what the disciples have gone through is kind of more drama-packed than that, what happens on Married at First Sight. You know, they've come here, their disciples washed their feet. You know, there's talk of betrayal and abandonment. Judas, who you've watched for three years, has just left like kind of stormed out to betray your leader, Jesus, your leader. He's troubled. He's anxious. You know, they got a lot going on for the disciples. But Jesus, in, in compassion and in kindness, he speaks into that space. And he says, don't be troubled. Don't be troubled. Don't be anxious. Don't be worried. And, and why? Well, it's because of what he's about to say. It's because of his claim. It's because of what he's saying, that he's going to the Father in heaven. And so the question is, why then is Jesus' claim to go to the Father in heaven, why is that a comfort? Why is that a good thing for the disciples? Why is what he's saying, why is that going to help them in their present trouble and anxiety? 
Well, it's because what Jesus is saying here essentially is that there's a purpose. There's something bigger going on here. This isn't just all an accident, but actually there's a purpose to what's happening. The whole foot washing thing, the whole betrayal thing, the whole abandonment thing, the whole cross thing. You know what we will see? Jesus being beaten and bruised and then thorns crushed in his head as he's hung on a cross. This whole thing is happening for a purpose, an eternal purpose. And that purpose is the preparation that Jesus is doing to prepare a spot for his disciples. The whole thing is purpose-filled. As Jesus goes through what he goes through, he's going through this to prepare a spot for them. So what Jesus is saying to the, the disciples in this moment, in the present trouble is, this is all happening for a reason. And it's so that you can know you've got a spot in heaven. Now, you can see why this is comfort in that trouble. You know, Jesus is not out of control here. He's in control and this is happening for a reason. This is good news for the disciples. But obviously what Jesus is saying here is good news for us as well. Because he's saying to us, you have a spot. You have a spot in heaven. Jesus has prepared that spot for you by Jesus' death and resurrection. And that's good news for us. Because how often do we in our world ask this question, will I have a spot? Will I be accepted? Will I be loved? You know, whether it's from our experiences in our life of betrayal and abandonment, whether it's that we've never been accepted, whether it's that we're always picked last or never picked at all, and even though we might not say it out loud, deep down we have these overwhelming senses. I'm not good enough. I can't be accepted. I'm unlovely. Jesus speaks into that. And he says, you got a spot. You're accepted. There is a spot for you in the presence of the Father, not because of how good you are, but because of what Jesus has done, where you can be in the presence of the Father, fully known and fully loved. Where you are fully known, your warts and all, who we really are is fully known, and yet we have a spot because of what Jesus has done. And so this is the the first claim of Jesus that he makes. I'm going to heaven, and I'm going to prepare a spot for you. But this is the first of four. We see uh, three more claims here in this passage, and the next begins in verse 4, because he he kind of alluded to it. He said, you know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas, in verse 5, replies and says, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Now, before we jump in and give the disciples a hard time, which I feel like we want to do, We've got to empathize with them, right? They've got a bit going on. And so they're a little bit confused by what's happening. And I think we could argue that we only really know what's fully happening because we get the end of the story. And so before we kind of pay the disciples out, Thomas asks this question, Lord, you know, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? He's essentially saying the experience we all know. How can I know what Google Maps is telling me where to go if I don't have the destination? You've got to put that in first and then you'll know where to go. That's what he's saying. I'm grateful for Thomas because I am Thomas. And Jesus responds in that moment where he says, I don't know where we're going. And Jesus says to Thomas, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus responds to Thomas's question with his second unique claim, and his claim is that he is the exclusive way to the Father. 
Jesus is saying he is the exclusive way to eternal life. You know, there's no hiding from it here. That's what he's saying, right? There is no other way. There is no other truth. There is no other way to find life. Jesus is the exclusive way to find life and to find truth. Jesus is the exclusive way to heaven. Now, as we think about this throughout the years, there's been this illustration to kind of explain what Jesus is saying, what he's not saying here. And it's kind of got to do with a mountain. So here's a picture of a nice mountain. Uh, throughout the years, uh, people explain this like this, that if you, God is kind of at the top of the mountain. And if you can climb up to the mountain, you'll get to God. And so the idea that all religions are the same is this idea that it doesn't actually matter what path you take. It doesn't matter what road you take up to the mountain. You know, it might look different one to the next, but it doesn't matter which road you take because eventually you're going to get to the top of the mountain and you're going to reach God up there anyway. That's kind of the, the, the way that people say, that idea, all religions are the same. Whatever path you take will get you to God. You know, it's all roads lead to Rome. That's kind of essentially what it is here. But what Jesus is saying here is that not every path leads to God. He's saying not every road leads to Rome. Not every road will get you to life. Jesus is saying exclusively, no, there is only one path that will get you to God. And radically, the reason Jesus is saying this is because God didn't stay at the top of the mountain. Jesus can say this because God came down from the top of the mountain, entered into our world. We see this in Jesus. He lived this perfect life where he proved himself with signs and wonders. God came down from the mountain to show people how to get to God. And here, this is what Jesus is doing. saying there's only one way, one exclusive way to God, and it's through Jesus. It's through his death and resurrection. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. So we see this second claim, second big, unique, exclusive claim. And we see not only the claim of Jesus and how it's different to other belief systems, but we also see why it matters. Because what Jesus is saying in this moment is not that every road leads to Rome. He's saying here, not every path leads to life. In fact, some paths lead to death. But there is a way to life. And it's Jesus. So, so we get the second claim. Second claim, exclusive way to God. First, he's going to heaven. Second, the exclusive way to God. What's the third? Well, we've actually seen it touched on already. It's that he is God. Jesus is God. So we saw that in verse 1 where he said, uh, you believe in God, believe also in me. We kind of got it alluded to in verse 7 where he said, if you know my Father, you know me. But now it gets uh, kind of He reveals it more fully because in verse 8, Philip goes, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Now again, Philip, like Thomas before him, let's just empathize with him for a moment. Doesn't really know what's going on, but asks kind of a normal question. And he's just saying, Lord, just kind of give us the vision of the Father in heaven and then we'll believe. And and so Jesus responds to him and he's kind of a little bit annoyed. And and we see this in verse 9. He says, Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least on the evidence of the works themselves." The third claim that Jesus is making here is that he is God. Jesus claims 
to be God. That's what he means when he says, I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. He is claiming here to be God. Now, this is not a new idea in the book of John. You know, we've seen this over and over again in John. Uh, if you remember, if you were with us last year when we kicked this series off in John chapter 1, John writes, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He's saying Jesus was with God and Jesus is God. You know, we, we've seen this over and over again as well through these I am statements throughout the book of John. In the Old Testament, God revealed himself as the I am. When Jesus rocks up, he says, you know, the God of the Old Testament, that's me. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. Even in this passage, I am the way. Jesus over and over again consistently claims to be God and then he'll be killed for his claims to be God. And here he's doing it again. He's saying, I'm the father and the father is in me and I am in him. And so what we see here is that Jesus is claiming something pretty massive. He's claiming he's the God of the Bible, the Trinitarian God, as we call it, the Father, Son, and Spirit, three unique persons, but only one God. So Jesus is not claiming to be a God. He's not claiming to be a version of God. He is claiming to be God. He's claiming to be God here. Now, this really matters. Right? This is an exclusive statement here that Jesus is claiming to be God. And I love how he drops it. Did you notice how he said that? I love how he gets at this because he, he, he gets that it's hard. You know, when he says to Philip, he's like, I'm in the Father, the Father's in me. And then he gets to the end of it. He's like, if you don't believe these words, at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. He gets that it's a hard teaching to take. And yet he says, if you're struggling with the words, look at the works. Essentially, this is the version today of, you know, when you see something, you video something, and you say you saw a good video, and then you show the video. This is what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, listen, the words might be hard, but look at the works. And, and Philip saw the works. You know, it's, it's kind of like he's saying to Philip in this moment, you watched me turn water into wine. You, you watched me. I mean, Philip was there on the mountain, when they tried to, you know, they were looking for food to feed the 5,000 men. And Philip would have gone around and asked people for their bread and, you know, if they had anything. He found the five loaves of bread and the two fish. Philip saw Jesus feed those people. Philip seen Lazarus come back from the dead. What Jesus is saying here in this moment is, yes, the teaching's hard, but if you don't believe the words, look at what I've done. Look at the works. And we see this claim here. Jesus is claiming to be God. Now, what often happens when we see this claim and stuff like this, I think what happens for us today is we often look back and go, well, people believed this back then because they're gullible. You know, in the ancient world, they just believed this type of stuff because, I don't know, they didn't have the internet. And they're a little bit dumb. But for us, we'd never believe this. You know, in the same circumstances, we wouldn't believe the same thing. But what's interesting is that for a Jewish person, in the ancient world, the idea that they would believe that a person is God is kind of unheard of. And, and the reason that is, is because of how, how highly they held God. You know, they grew up, they went to school learning about God, and they held God as holy and to be revered. They wouldn't mess with God. They wouldn't mess with his name or who he is because he's holy. And so you, you see this in a couple of ways. Uh, one of my favorites is with the Old Testament scribes. When, they were, um, w when people would put the Old Testament out into Scripture, if they stuffed up the word God, they'd throw the whole manuscript out. You know, this is like today, this is like getting to the end of a 5,000-word assignment that took you like weeks to write, and you stuff up the conclusion, 
and delete the whole file. <laughs> this is what they did with the Old Testament scripture on like a cow skin. It's hard work to do that. But they did that because that's how highly they held the name of God. They didn't want to stuff up God's name. Then you also have just the fact that as a nation, they had blasphemy laws. You know, if someone blasphemed against God or claimed to be God, they were happy as a nation to put that person to death. You know, I think you could make an argument that actually to believe that a person was God back then is harder than it is today. I mean, today you just got to be good at sport, right? They're an immortal. They're a God among men. Back then it wasn't that easy. And so Jesus' claim here is big for us, but it's also big for his disciples. But he's saying, listen, if the words, if you're struggling with these words, at least look at what he's done. And so we see the third claim from Jesus here that he is God. So first, he's going to heaven. Second, he's the exclusive way to heaven. Third, he is God. And then we get the final claim in these final four, uh, couple of verses here. And the final claim is that even after he's gone, this thing will continue. We see this from verse 12. He says, Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may, ask for, uh, you may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. The fourth claim that Jesus is making here is that even after he's gone, this thing will continue and will grow into something great. But the big question here is, what does Jesus mean when he says, you will do greater things? Right? That's the question. Because it kind of feels a little bit out of place here. You know, big claims, one, two, three, big claims, and then all of a sudden he talks about prayer. So, so what's going on here? Why is Jesus speaking about this? What does he mean by greater things? You know, does this mean that when I pray, I can just put Jesus' name on the end of it and get whatever I want? You know, Lord, I pray that I'd have lots and lots of money in Jesus' name. You know, our wildest dreams, whatever that wildest dream is, you know, Lord, I pray that I could just make money by watching Netflix in Jesus' name. Make it happen. Is that, is that what we're doing here? I mean, because that's kind of how it feels like it, it reads. You'll do greater things in Jesus' name. Well, well, to understand this, it's all actually got to do with the name of Jesus. Like, what does he mean that we can just pray in Jesus' name? And to understand this, we've got to go back to the ancient world's understanding of what someone's name meant. See, in the ancient world, someone's name was not simply their title, it was who they are. It's kind of the embodiment of who they are. Someone's name, it's like if you're going to use someone's name, it's who they are, it's their purposes, it's their mission, it's, who, it's their very DNA, their character. So if you're going to use someone's name, they've got to be on board with you using their name. And so to pray in Jesus' name, what we're saying is, Jesus, I'm going to ask you for something, and if you're on board with it, then, then you can do that. It's kind of like this. I don't know if you're into this or saw it, but this week uh, a, a festival, a music festival in Byron released its um, music lineup. Splendor in the Grass uh, released its lineup of who's playing there this year, and the clickbait that got me in was best lineup ever. So I clicked on it, and I saw that this year Flume is the headline act for Australia only. Now, the way that festivals work is that as they're organizing their festival, they don't just look through Spotify and pick who they want to play there and then write their name down. You know, Flume didn't wake up on Wednesday and go, oh, okay, I'm playing at Splendor this year, that's cool. No, we know how it works. You ask the artist, and if the artist is on board with what you're doing, then the artist will turn up. 
Now, I, I think this is helpful. When we're praying in Jesus' name, this is kind of the idea. We pray in Jesus' name according to his purpose and his will and his mission. And if Jesus is on board with it, he's going to turn up. And when he turns up, he says, I'm going to do greater things than this. Now, we see this in the book of Acts. You know, if we will flip over a few pages, we see this. God's people pray in Jesus' name and Jesus turns up. Thousands of people become Christians. And so what we see in this moment, in this claim, is Jesus is saying, even after I'm gone, this movement will continue. You will do greater things. So as we get to the end of the passage, you see the four claims coming together. Jesus is going to heaven. Jesus is the exclusive way to God. Jesus is God, and then this thing will continue after he's gone. But as we get to the end of the passage, I think it raises the question, so what does this mean for us? What does it mean for us as we understand these claims or see these claims of Jesus? What does it look like for us as we look at these kind of four claims that build on top of each other to make this weighty argument for who Jesus is and what he said he'll do? And I think when we look at this and see this, I think it means at least two things for us. It means at least two things for us as we kind of get to the end of this passage. The first is that it gives us our convictions. The first, things it means, uh, first thing it means for us is we have convictions that Jesus is not the same as everything else. We have convictions that Jesus stands alone compared to every other religion and belief system. Our convictions are that this really matters. And these are our, our convictions. These convictions transform us. Now, if you're here and these are not your convictions, man, we just love having you here and we want to help you see how you can have these convictions in Jesus. In fact, come to the life course. I mean, that's essentially what it is. We want to talk about this, ask questions about it. But, but if you are here and you believe in this stuff, then these are our convictions and these convictions must transform us and change us. And not only must they transform us and change us, but as we look at these convictions, we can have confidence. We can have a confidence in Jesus. This is something recently um, it was brought to my attention in the claims of Jesus that we can have confidence in it by a guy called Tim Keller. Uh, he's a, a really great author who pretty much every book he's ever written is awesome that I've read. Uh, and this book was no different. It's called Making Sense of God. And uh, in this, he talks about the confidence that we have in what Jesus said, in the claims that Jesus made. And to do that, he uh, does this thing, which is kind of cool. So he looks at this book called World Religions, and he says the author of the book of World Religions says throughout history, there were only two people ever who their contemporaries, the people around them, didn't just ask the question, who are you, but what are you? Of what order are you? What type of thing are you? And he says, it's Buddha and it's Jesus. The only two people throughout history that their contemporaries, the people around them, ask the question, not just who are you, but what are you? Now, the problem comes as we understand Jesus. And, and the problem is this. He says, Buddha never claimed to be God. Never claimed to be God. He, he never claimed to be divine or angelic. Whereas Jesus consistently claimed to be divine consistently claimed to be God. Now, as you look at this, he says there's kind of two groups of people then. On the one hand, over here, you've got the group of people who are your influential leaders throughout history. So the people throughout history who have significantly shaped thought and reason over history in humanity. So he points to like Jesus. 
He points to Plato. He points to Aristotle, the, the world leaders who have influenced human thought and reason. And he says of the tiny select group, Jesus is in that. Then on the other hand, you've got another group of people. And this is the group of people who claim divinity, who claim to be God. You know, these are your firebrands, your charismatic people who claim to be God. He said often these people are your cult leaders. You know, your leaders who get people to follow them, uh, uh, they follow them blindly. Uh, normally, often, it's a small group of people. And then when that leader dies, the movement is falsified and then those disciples fade off. And he said this happened not just you know, on Netflix today and in our world today, um, but in the ancient world as well. He said in the ancient world, other people claimed to be divine, had a few followers, and then when they died, they disappeared. Now, where's the confidence in understanding this? You know, on one hand, you've got the influential world leaders. On the other hand, you've got people who claim divinity. Well, Keller says this. This is his quote. He says, What is unique about Jesus is that he's the only member of the first set of persons who is also a member of the second. He's the only member of the influential world leaders and of the second, those who claim divinity. The first group, the world leaders, had a great impact on millions of people, largely because of their brilliant teaching, but also because of their admirable lives and character, which of course included humility. Buddha emphatically said that he was not a god. And Muhammad, of course, would never ever claimed to be Allah, nor did Confucius identify himself with heaven. But the second group, the second group consists of those who claim to be God, but were never able to convince anyone but a small number. Why? Because it is virtually impossible to live such an extraordinary life that most people would be forced to conclude that you were not merely a human being. In the whole history of the world, there is only one person who not only claimed to be God himself, but also got an enormous number of people to believe it. Only Jesus combines claims of divinity with the most beautiful life of humanity. You see the confidence that we can have in the convictions that we have on the claims that Jesus made? Yes, Jesus said big things. I'm going to heaven. I'm the exclusive way to God. I am God. This thing will continue after I'm gone. But these claims were backed up. He proved his claims with the most beautiful life of humanity, with humility, with servant leadership, with signs and wonders and works, with his death and resurrection. And so when we look at these claims, yes, they're big, but we can have confidence in these claims. We can have confidence in Jesus. So, so the first thing it means for us is our convictions. We have confidence in our convictions, but the second thing flows out of the first. We have courage. We have a courage to go into our world to help people see what we believe. You see, if we really do believe what we say we believe, if we do really believe that Jesus is the only way, then it must transform us, empower us, and give us a courage to push into our world, knowing that as we push into our world, God is there with us. You know, this is the courage that we see in the disciples in the face of persecution, in the face of suffering, and in the face of death. And it's the courage that we must have as well. Because our world is disinterested and disengaged, and we will face denial. 
But the courage that we have is that we can push into knowing our convictions, knowing the confidence that we have, knowing that Jesus is the exclusive way to God. And knowing that as we push into it, it's not for our name or our glory, but the name of Jesus. And as we have the courage to push into this, he says, as you do, as you go on mission, as you do the things that God has called you to do, this is where he'll work. And you'll do greater things for the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you made it clear to us that you came down from the mountain, you entered into our world. And Jesus, yes, you made big claims. God, we thank you that we can have confidence in these claims. We, we thank you that we can have the confidence that this is true and that this is real and that this does affect us and that this does matter. And we pray, Lord, that these claims and these convictions that we have would transform our lives, that we would, be, we would live lives of courage as we push into our world, knowing that this stuff really does matter. We ask for your grace in this, Lord. We ask for your presence in this. We ask for your power in this. And we pray that, Lord, as we fumble about, as we go, as we stuff up, as we take one step forward and two steps back, we pray that you would be gracious to us and empower us and help us to keep going. And we pray, Lord, that as we go on mission as a church here at Southside, we pray that we would do greater things, not for our name or our glory, but for your name and your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.